So we're in 1 Samuel 29. We're in the series that we started at the beginning of last year, After God's Own Heart. We've been going through the entire book. Uh, It's been a while. Uh, We're almost done. We're in chapter 29. There's only 31 chapters in this book, um, but we're actually going to go into 2 Samuel after, so it'll be a little longer. It'll take us all the way to Advent of this year. But we have a couple of chapters still in this first half of this story about David. So... We're going to go over all of chapter 29. It's not that long. It's only 11 verses. Um, But I'm going to read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it, kind of back to our regularly scheduled programming. So let's read together 1 Samuel 29. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, The commanders of the Philistines said, what are the Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle lest... In the battle, he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Verse 9, and Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. This is the word of God. Will you bow your heads? Let's pray. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this afternoon. God, it is a new year. So Father, I pray that as we get situated in our lives, God, as we get situated even right here, maybe we're flustered. Maybe it's been a busy couple of weeks as we get ready to go back to school or work or whatever tomorrow. God, I pray that we would center ourselves in your word. God, your word is timeless. It is eternal. It speaks truth to our lives. It is the food that we need, the bread that we eat. So God, I pray that however we start this year, that at least, at the very least, we would start it in your word. And God, I pray that you would speak to us. God, in some ways, I think this is a very simple, straightforward passage, but in other ways, it's very complex, the ideas in it. Wherever we're at, wherever our understanding, whatever we're struggling with, God, I pray that you would use your word to speak to our hearts. And I pray, God, that you would do something in us through this time, something only you can do. 
God, we look to you. We look to your Holy Spirit to do that work of transformation. And we look to your son. God, we want this time to be about him and his glory, not about us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I read a story of a guy named Joe recently. He was accused of murder. So what happened was he was already in jail because of a robbery. He had served a few years. But while he was in prison, what happened was someone accused him of murdering another person in the jail. I don't know if it was a prison guard or an inmate. But the thing about robbery is you get a couple years in jail, max. But murdering someone, killing someone, that was a whole nother matter. It was way more serious. So he was under trial now for something that could actually get him the death penalty in his state. So he hired a lawyer or they gave him a lawyer. And unfortunately, his lawyer wasn't very good. He wasn't very skilled. The first thing the lawyer said to him when they met was, I've only done seven cases and six of the people that I defended got the death penalty. But I did get one, and he got life in prison. So, not bad. Unfortunately for Joe, that's what he got. They had a trial. A witness named another man as the killer, which was kind of a ray of hope. But that didn't work. They had all these witnesses against Joe, but they had super contradicting testimony. So that seemed like maybe it would help. But at the end of the day, the jury still found Joe guilty, and Joe was forced into one of the craziest predicaments of his life. Maybe the last crazy predicament of his life. He could go for either the rock or the hard place. He basically had two choices. Try to force the judge to give him the death penalty or try to kind of argue his way into getting merely life in prison. And it was right at this moment. And it might surprise you. It might sound odd. But it was at this moment that Joe decided in his heart that he needed to convince the judge that he actually deserved execution, the death penalty. And we'll get to why at the end of this. But the saddest part about it all was that, and I maybe you guessed this, but the saddest part about it all was that Joe actually, when it came to this killing, was in fact innocent. Now, again, we'll come back to Joe later. You've heard stories, I'm sure, about innocent people who have been locked up for things that they didn't do. And later on, after years and years of rotting away in a cell, some new evidence comes to light, maybe DNA stuff, and they get exonerated and freed, but they lost so much of their lives already. You've heard about that. But the reality is, and I think we know this, that sometimes justice isn't served, right? Like judges, human judges, they're fallible. Juries, they're fallible. A lot of times they do get it right, but oftentimes, at least in many cases, they don't. And these unjust sentences really highlight how important justice, real justice truly is. That the truly innocent get to go free and that the truly guilty don't. Though there's some nuance people might point to, generally speaking, the bedrock of civil society has been this idea of lex talionis. Do you guys know what that is? Lex talionis. Uh, it's not English, but you might have heard of it kind of in a modern sense. We call it nowadays usually an eye for an eye. It's an ancient idea 
that has been the bedrock of civil society for thousands of years. An eye for an eye. The idea that the punishment should fit the crime or it should be somewhat one-to-one. We see this in the scriptures. It's biblical. Leviticus 24 verse 18. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Verse 21, whoever kills an animal shall make it good. And whoever kills a person shall be put to death. The idea is fairness. If you were wronged, you know that the perpetrator isn't going to get away with it. And if you were the one doing the wrong... At least you know that it'll be fair. You're not going to get a punishment way in excess of the crime that you committed. You're not going to steal a loaf of bread and and then get your entire family executed. If you think Lex Talionis is cruel or too much or kind of rubs you the wrong way, we're going to start with this idea. Ask yourself, what should happen then to people who are in fact guilty. What should be the case? See, what we're talking about today is guilt. Now, I know it's been a while since we've been in 1 Samuel, okay? It's been weeks. I don't even know. Four weeks? It's been a month? And reading this passage might not have immediately made you think of, oh, okay, this is about guilt, obviously. So let me remind you of where we are, okay? Maybe Maybe you're new or you're visiting too, so let me just kind of catch you up to speed here. We're at the end of the book, okay? This is almost toward the climactic moment at the end of 1 Samuel where there's this big battle and Saul, the current king of Israel, the one who's chasing David, who's hunting him, dies. This has already been established through the mouth of the prophet Samuel. Saul is going to die at this battle. And these last few chapters are all building up to this big confrontation that's going to happen between the Israelites and the Philistines. The narrative has been building and building and building. And at the end of this, Saul is going to be dead, and Jonathan, his son, is going to be dead, and David is going to reign alone on the throne as the Lord's anointed, and that'll take us into 2 Samuel. Last chapter, though, we saw Saul on the Israelite side. The camera's been kind of moving from scene to scene, one side to the other. Saul has been on the Israelite side. He is absurdly scared due to the, due to the Philistine army gathering against him. You remember that Saul has not been on good terms with God. He hasn't sought God. He hasn't been obedient. But now that he sees the Philistines gathering their army, he freaks out. He tries to seek after God. God doesn't answer him. So what does he do? He turns to the occult. Right? He seeks out a medium. He wants to try to seek after the ghost of Samuel. That's his plan. And God actually supernaturally allows him to speak to the spirit of Samuel. And Samuel says, yeah, you're going to die tomorrow. That's it. Game over. Meanwhile, on the Philistine side, we saw this two chapters ago when we're back there today, we saw David. And if you don't remember, just think about this kind of freshly now. Isn't this weird? Why is David, the man after God's own heart, the future king of Israel, why is he on the wrong side of the battle? Why is he with the Philistines? If you don't remember, he was desperate. He ran away from Saul. And what he did was he went to Achish, one of the warlords of the Philistines. He pretended to serve him. He pretended that he was a turncoat against Israel. He maintained this delicate deception through lies and strategic slaughter. He's been playing this dangerous game. And the camera 
he's cutting back and forth. Saul and David, Israelites and Philistines, Saul and David. And now it's back to David. And he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. And if you don't understand what the stakes are, either now that they're lining up for battle, either he fights against his own people, possibly kills some of them to maintain the lie, kills his own brothers, the people he's supposed to lead as their king, or he exposes himself as a liar and he puts his family and the men with him and his own self in mortal danger. So let's get into it. Three points from the text today. Three headings to break it down. First, the inquiry. Okay, the inquiry, the question, you could say. But I needed an I word. Okay, so the inquiry. We start with a question which reminds us of the principle that you reap what you sow. Look at verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. Okay, so real quick, just a little more context so you can... Get the scene in your mind. The Philistines are amassing their forces against Israel. It says that there are hundreds, there are thousands of people. They are the aggressors. And judging from the geography, it's pretty clear that the intention is to seize territory that runs throughout Israel. They want to take control of this trade route that goes right through the promised land to connect the Philistines who are on the Mediterranean coast with the rest of the world, where the Assyrians and the Babylons are, all these other countries. They want to go through Israel to open themselves up to the international community. They want to get bigger. Saul, on the other hand, has a vested interest as the king of Israel to keep the Philistines from taking over their country. So he is trying desperately to get an army to stand against the Philistines. He's trying to mobilize. Now, if you look at chapter 28, look at the first couple of verses in the last chapter, verses 1 and 2. It says, in those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. Now, okay, who is Achish? I said he was the warlord of the Philistines. Okay, you got to understand the Philistines were not a centralized nation as you might expect a nation to be like with one king or one ruler, a president, whatever. The Philistines were these five cities, okay, five major cities with little towns around them. And each of the cities had their own king, small K, like lowercase, little king. They were warlords, okay? They were the lords of the Philistines, the commanders of the Philistines. And together, these five guys would rule kind of Philistia when they joined forces. Sometimes they would for battles like this. It was kind of like an ancient Near Eastern Voltron Okay, kind of dating myself as being too young for many of you and too old for the rest of you. So anyway, for you 35-year-olds, you get it? They would team up. But basically, it was kind of this loose confederation. Akish is just one of those leaders. He's the leader of Gath. Now, who is from Gath? Do you guys remember? Goliath. Gath is the Philistine city that's closest to Israel. So David runs there. I don't know why he runs to the place where Goliath is from, considering the history he has, but he goes there. He tricks Akish into thinking that he is a loyal servant. He's with Akish right now. They're gathering their forces for battle. And Akish is like, of course you guys are coming with us, right? We're going to go fight. You're some of our best fighters. And David says to Akish, verse 2, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And you be any more vague, but you understand that David is stuck here. He doesn't want to fight his people. He never actually betrayed his people. He's just lying to Akish. He's tricking Akish. 
But Akish wants him to come. Akish is like, very well, you shall be my bodyguard for life. You know, BFF, best bodyguard for life. There's all of this lying. There's all of this deceit. There are these things that David is trying to juggle. And now David is being pushed further and further into the deception. Now keep this in mind if you go back to our text. Look at verse 2 now. As the lords of the Philistines, 29-2, as the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with a quiche, the commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And that's the question. Okay, that is the aforementioned inquiry. What are these Hebrews doing here going to war against the Hebrews? Why would they be lining up with us? Okay, step out of the flow of the narrative for a second. Okay, just to step out of that stream and look at it big picture. What is David, the anointed king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, doing with a quiche, lining up for battle against his own brethren, where he will presumably have to lead his men to fight and kill the people he's supposed to defend and lead? When you stop and think about it for even just a moment, literally, what's going on here? It's a terrible look. Now, turn with me to Luke 15. You can keep your place here. We'll be back. Luke 15. I want to show you something by way of illustration. Luke 15 contains perhaps Jesus' most famous parable. Okay? The parable of the prodigal son. And there's so much in it. You could preach the whole series through this chapter, but I just want to show you one thing. Look at verse 11. This is where the parable starts in earnest. And he, Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, real quick, for the sake of understanding what's going on here, you need to know that this request is incredibly disrespectful and dishonoring. Okay, it's a terrible thing for a son to say to a father. The younger son is asking for what he would receive after his father passes away, after his father dies, but he wants it now. Now, it's kind of in poor taste if I did that now. If I was like Stan or dad, as I call him, dad, I would like my inheritance right now. I can't wait for you to die. The life expectancy keeps going up. And it's taking too much time. That would be a terrible thing for a son to say today. But in that culture, in that time, it wasn't just a rude thing to say or a poor taste thing to say. It was tantamount to really wishing your father an early death. It was cutting off the relationship. It was cursing your father. Basically, he's saying, I can't wait for this to be over. I just, just give it to me now and go die. I don't care. And the father actually gives it to him. Verse 13, look. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. Now, I think you guys know this, but Jewish people, they eat kosher. Right? They don't eat pork. They don't eat bacon. Okay? They don't do any of that stuff. By law, they were not allowed to eat anything that was deemed unclean. And one of the main unclean animals, the one that we all know and most of us love, 
pigs. They wanted nothing to do with pigs. I ate bacon this morning. But now his son, the son is so desperate, he finds himself in the pigsty, feeding the pigs. And worse than that, look at verse 16. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. He didn't just want to eat the pigs. He wanted to eat the food that the pigs were eating. And still no one gave him anything. No food, no friends, no family. This is truly rock bottom. And I think you know where the story goes. But the reason I brought you here is verse 17. Look at verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. He's asking himself a question. And I know the formulation is different, but essentially what he's asking himself is, what he's saying to himself in his own inner dialogue is, what are you doing here? What am I doing here? Now, maybe you aren't working in a pigsty, literally, okay? Hopefully not. You're not literally starving. Maybe you aren't lining up for battle against your own people and your own friends and family and nation. But wherever you're at, it's important to sometimes stop and look around and kind of just take stock of the scenery of your life for a moment and ask yourself, truly ask, what am I doing here? Or maybe you need someone else to ask you, kind of like the Philistines. What are these Hebrews doing here? Maybe you need someone like me to just ask you right now at the beginning of this new year, what are you doing here? And I don't mean like doing here at church. That's a good question to ask. It's always good to look at your motivations. But what I mean is your life, the situation or situations of your life. For example, what are you, a person, who says that Jesus is everything to you. Doing in a relationship with a person who clearly doesn't believe the same thing. Or what are you doing working in a job that forces you to compromise your character and your values and your priorities? What are you doing getting so close to that coworker even though you're married? What are you doing spending so much time on your phone when your kids are right there in front of you and you know and you want to be a better parent, but your actions don't add up? I preached to myself with that last one. I think relationships. How did formerly close relationships, people that you were tight with even last year, how did they fall apart? How did you get here in that relationship? Think finances. How did I get to the point where money or my investments or the things that I want to buy take up so much of my heart and my time and my thinking. Think faith. What am I doing in my Christian life? I used to have this fire for God, but somewhere along the way, I just became who I am right now. I'm not involved. I have no desire to read the Bible. I'm not doing anything to stoke the flames of a passion for Christ. See, here's what we learn from the prodigal son and what we learn from David in our text. Hopefully you're seeing this. Where you are right now in the present always has a direct connection to the choices and actions that you made and took in the past. In other words, Galatians 6, verse 7. Let me read it for you. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also what? reap. The prodigal son spent all his money on wild living. 
he went far away. He told his father, I wish you were dead. Sure, he didn't know that there was going to be a famine, but what did you expect was going to happen when you do this kind of thing? You're never going to be in a good place if you waste all your money and cut off all your closest relationships. You reap what you sow. Now, back to 1 Samuel 29. You can go back there, 1 Samuel 29. Actually, go back to verse, uh, chapter 27. Go to 27. I want to, I want to show you where this started. 1 Samuel 27, look at verse 1. After all this time, then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. Now David has been delivered by God again and again and again. Dozens of times, God has been faithful. The same God who delivered him from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear would deliver him from the hand of King Saul, right? That's what young David would have said. But here David despairs. He's not thinking about God at all. You might remember it's been a long time. But 1 Samuel 27, there's no mention of God at all. For the first time in this narrative, David, who has such great faith, isn't thinking about God at all. And it leads him to make a foolish decision. He has these despairing, defeatist thoughts. I shall perish. It's not motivated by faith. It's motivated by fear. And even though the plan works in a sense, he does escape Saul for a little bit. Really, all he does is jump out of the frying pan and into the fire. Hosea 8.7. It speaks of reaping, or excuse me, it speaks of sowing the wind and reaping the whirlwind. Have you ever heard that before? Maybe you've heard someone use that saying, right? You sow the wind and what you reap is the whirlwind. What it means is if you sow foolishness, if you sow vanity, sow things that are not a good idea, that's what the wind kind of represents, you will reap a storm. You will reap disaster. And that's exactly what David's done. David went into this, went into this situation, bringing all these people, bringing his family even into it without a parachute. He jumped out into the land of the Philistines. He started stacking lies. He has been sowing the wind and now he's about to reap the whirlwind. Now we'll move to the next point. But before we do real quick, just know this, reaping and sowing, okay? Reaping and sowing, it's how the world works So ask yourself, please just ask yourself the hard question about your own life. I could ask you, but really you got to do the introspection yourself. How did you get here? How did you get here? It's tempting to start thinking, oh, it's because this person did this or because this happened to me. But just think about the steps that you took. Of course, there are bad circumstances. There always are. But in terms of your actions your motivations, uh, in terms of your contribution, how did you get to where you are right now? What did I sow to reap this? How did I contribute to this burnt bridge or my unhappy marriage or to the rebellion in my child's heart? It's not an easy thing to ask. Most people want to avoid this question at all costs. I'm not going to have you share out loud with a group or anything like that. But just for your own heart, as you start this year off, as we get back into this study in 1 Samuel, as as we start thinking about the heart again after God's own heart, search your own heart. 
How did you get here? Take responsibility. And then know this, that if you actually start to take responsibility for what you reap and what you sow, that you can sow something different. You can sow something different. I didn't get to preach a New Year's message last week, so I'm going to do a mini one right now. You can sow something different. It's New Year's, man. New Year's, new you, right? It's as good a time as any to start sowing something different in your life. Galatians 6, 9, right after Paul says, you reap what you sow, he says this. He writes, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. It goes both ways. You sow some bad stuff, you will reap some bad stuff. But if you sow goodness and faithfulness, you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. I know a lot of you are trying. I'm not always trying to guilt trip you every week. I know some of you guys are trying. You're giving your best to your families and to your work and to your brothers and sisters in Christ right here in the body of Christ. And yet you haven't seen as much fruit as you'd like. You're out there trying to do stuff. Don't give up. Keep sowing. Keep sowing what you know to be good, and you will reap a harvest. There's a fairness to it all. And this leads to the second point. The second point. So the inquiry was really about just taking stock of where you're at and understanding your own contribution to that. The second point is the intervention. Okay, not about like sitting someone down and a human intervention. This is divine intervention. And this point is about the unfairness of it all. I'll explain in a second. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 again. Pick up where we left off. Chapter 29. The commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? Now, I know the whole first point kind of spun off of this question, but we need to just mine a little bit more out of this verse. There's one more thing to mention. There's a danger in this question that we need to appreciate. This isn't innocuous. This isn't harmless. It's not like, hey, what are you guys doing here? Good to see you. It's not that at all. Okay, these are the Philistine warlords. The Philistines and the Hebrews actually hated each other and not in a, like, I blocked you on Facebook kind of way. They actually killed each other. Do you guys remember when David wanted to marry Saul's daughter, Michal? The bride price was 200 Philistine foreskins. Think about that. Actually, don't think about that too much, okay? But anyway, think about what it represents, okay? Not literally. But think about the violence. That's what I mean. Think about the killing. Anyway, that's enough. Don't think about it anymore. It's easy to skim over the story and the details. It's easy to miss kind of the impact that the text is trying to press upon us. But this is really life and death. There's an urgency here. You know, one of the most interesting things about being a parent to me, I don't know if you can relate to this, um, but as parents, we start to see more and more of ourselves and our kids, right? The good and the bad and everything in between. And uh, one of my kids, I won't say who it is, uh, one of the, the things I try never to do is use my children in sermon illustrations. I, just, I use other people's children. Uh, but I try not to do it just because you reap what you sow, right? It's on the internet. Anyway, one of my kids, she just has no sense of urgency at all. Like she's always taking her sweet time to do stuff, not realizing that there's such a thing as, you know, like punctuality or tardiness. She gets this from Christine, obviously. Uh, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. She gets it from me. 
And I think it can be good in a sense. You know, sometimes, like, I think that that's kind of where my chillness comes in. And I, you know, I think that that could be good. Makes me less high strung overall. But it's mostly bad um, because I greatly underestimate how long things will take. Uh, I struggle with punctuality. I think you guys know this. I'm working on it. I know it infuriates some of you guys. Eric did actually sit me down a few weeks ago and he said, listen, man, you need to be earlier. And I said, wow, persecution has come to the house of God, okay? But it's true. I do need to be earlier. Uh, I remember one time years ago, just so you get a sense of it, uh, I, I got invited to my friend's wedding and I was late to the wedding. I'm like, weddings always start late. So I show up and I open the door and I'm right there and the bride and her dad and the photographer are just standing there. She's about to walk in while I'm also going to walk in, right? And she's like, get out of the picture, right? I'm like, congrats, you know, because I'm so late. Christine constantly has to help us to get into gear to do stuff. She reminds us to be urgent when urgency is required. And the only reason I share this is because I think that this text could miss some of the punch if you don't understand that there's urgency built in, that this is truly life and death, that David, if you understand what he's going through, if you put yourself into his sandals, that he is going through maybe one of the most stressful times of his entire life where he truly has no idea how he's going to get out of this, and he knows that it's his own fault. we got to read these texts carefully, because if we don't see the urgency in here, we might miss the urgency for us and our own lives. I mean, how many times have we appreciated maybe a Bible study or maybe a sermon or something, and we're like, oh, that was, I, I got it, it was pretty good, but it didn't change us at all. There was no action, there was no urgency But for David, there is urgency. I'm sure he's praying. Knowing David, he's probably asking God, Lord, please help us. The Philistines are looking at them with suspicion. He knows that the lords of the Philistines are meeting. They're whispering and gesturing. It could all end right now. His family, these men. But then keep reading verse 3. Akish steps in to defend David. And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, his, his four peers, he says, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day? Achish acknowledges who David is. They all know who David is. But he tells them, you don't know him like I do. I've known this guy for a year, day, days, years. Okay, it's been a year and four months, actually, so it's a slight exaggeration. We've all done it. But the point is, Akish pushes back hard to defend David against anyone who would question him. He says David is faultless. David's on our side. Verse 4, but the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. He's not just going to be, okay, David's cool now, okay. They're angry. They're like, you fool. I'm sure that's what they're thinking. You've known him for a year. Now he's your best friend. You barely know each other. And they said, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he becomes an adversary to us. They go, fine. Okay, fine. Whatever. Maybe he's been loyal so far, but think about the battle. What if he comes with us and then in the heat of war, he turns against us? It'll be chaos. He will be behind us. He'll be in the middle of our army. It'll be the worst. Keep reading. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Think, Akish, would it not be with the heads of the men right here? 
means that even if he has been loyal for these few months, this is the perfect way, maybe the only way for David to be reconciled with Saul, to turn against us and to win the battle for Israel from the inside out. Come on, Akish, what are you thinking? And then to punctuate their point, they bring up the infamous song that has shown up again and again in 1 Samuel. Is this not David, of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. You really want to bring Israel's greatest hero with us in battle, on our flank? How many of those ten thousands were Philistines? I mean, it's like you've known Davy Crockett for six months, and now you think he's going to fight against Texas for you? It's not that different. Now, this is all happening behind closed doors, kind of this heated battle. Akish on the one side, the Philistine warlords on the other. But David isn't there. David is looking cool, calm, and collected, maybe standing outside. But he sees the way that the Philistine troops are looking at them. And inside, again, he's probably the most stressed he has ever been up to this point. But then Akish Akish approaches, verse 6. Then Akish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign, for I found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And just like that, David's free. It's crazy because for a while now, David has been digging his own grave. David has led himself to a dead end, but in the blink of an eye, he's good. This is the best case scenario. Practically speaking, Akish still trusts him. He doesn't suspect him at all. He still defends him, even though he's been lying. But the rest of the Philistine warlords don't want to bring him. So he gets to just go home and avoid the confrontation entirely. He's able to go peaceably, as verse 7 says. And just like that, David is completely off the hook. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about deus ex machina, the Latin phrase, God in the machine. The Greeks used to use that term to talk about how sometimes in stories, there would be like this divine intervention where things would be too easy for the hero and he would just be led off into victory. That's what we see right here. But there's another term, not a Latin term, but a biblical term for what happens in this moment. Do you know what it is? Mercy. Now, I want to show you something else in Luke. Go to Luke 18. Go to Luke chapter 18. Another parable. Maybe not quite as well known, but maybe you've heard it. Luke 18, look at verse 10. Actually, you can start in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one, excuse me, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisees, they were devout. They were the morally good people. They were the conservative, religious people of Israel. And they were actually good in a lot of ways. They did a lot of good for people. They they gave to the poor. They loved the scriptures. Many of them gave up worldly pursuits in order to serve. You could say they sowed a lot of good deeds. The tax collectors, on the other hand, were hated by everyone. It's not just that they took taxes. It's not just that they worked for the IRS or whatever. What they did was they were betrayers. They worked for Rome, the conquerors of Israel. And on top of that, tax collectors were known for extorting their own people, taking some off the top for themselves. They were greedy. They were selfish. They were the bottom of the barrel. They deserved all the hate that they got. So Jesus tells the story to illustrate a point. Notice the Pharisee. What does he do? He brags in his prayer about how great he is. Fair enough. He's not lying. But notice that the tax collector doesn't make any excuses or give any justification for his behavior. No, instead, what does he do? He cries out for what? Specifically, he cries out for mercy. Mercy and grace are related. You know grace. Grace is amazing. There's a slight difference in nuance between the two. Grace is getting something you do not deserve. It's a gift. Mercy, on the other hand, is not getting something that you do deserve, like punishment. You can turn back to our text now. Go back to 1 Samuel 29. Let's ask the question straight up, and then we'll go to the third point. What does David actually deserve? Sometimes we don't even ask the question. David's the hero. Of course, things are going to go his way. No, ask it. He's a human being. Ask it. What does David deserve for his lack of faith? What does Romans 14.23 say? For whatever, uh, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. David didn't just make a mistake. His going to Philistia was a sin. He didn't trust God. He turned away from God in that moment. What does David deserve for his lies and for his deceit. David gets off easy. He doesn't get what he deserves. And maybe you think that's not fair. I mean, I'm happy about it for David, good for him, but that's not fair. That's absolutely right. Mercy isn't fair. See, mercy is an interloper in a world of sowing and reaping. Mercy is when you don't reap the consequences of your bad decisions. And mercy is who God is. Think about this. It's hard, if it's hard to understand what I'm getting at, think about it this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created man and woman. He placed them in a garden called Eden. Do you know this story, beginning of the Bible? If you did a Bible and a year plan this year, hopefully you got that far. God places them in Eden, and he says, everything in the world is for you guys. Except for one thing. There's a tree in the midst of the garden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat of it, you shall surely die. So don't eat of it. But then Satan, the old serpent, he shows up in the garden. And his forked tongue uh, tells Eve that she would not surely die. That God was hiding the truth. That it would actually be good for her to eat of the fruit. And so she believed the serpent. She took of the fruit. She ate. She gave it to Adam. 
He ate, and together they plunged the world into sin, misery, and death. However, let me ask you this. Did they die? Did they die? Kind of a trick question. But they didn't drop dead when they ate the fruit, did they? But it's not like they ate it and they're like, oh, I'm not feeling that good. And then they dropped dead from like a poisonous forbidden fruit. No, the, the fruit was good. They had no indigestion at all. Eventually they died. Theologically speaking, they died spiritually to God. They were separated from his presence, but they didn't die right away, even though they sinned. So you got to understand something theologically. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. One sin and what you deserve. You, you sow one sin, one sinful action, one white lie, one time where you lost your temper uh, or, or something sinfully. You steal something. One time you deserve death. That's how serious sin is. So the harsh truth of 1 Samuel 29 is that David didn't just deserve a hard situation. He actually deserved to die. Not just Saul. Okay, Saul dies in that battle. David should have died in that battle too for his lack of faith, for his sin, for his lies. The harsh truth is, is that Joe, the guy I was talking about in the beginning, even though he was innocent of murder, according to God's calculus, for his sins, he also deserved to die. And the harshest truth maybe for us is that you and I, for our sin, we also deserve what? To die. So often, you can hear this among Christians, and I, I think I've said it myself, I don't deserve this. I deserve better. How come people aren't treating me the way that I've treated them? Whatever. But if you get to the bottom of it, if you want what you deserve, you deserve death. But there's good news. You know that prayer that we read in Luke 18? God be merciful to me, a sinner. He answers it all the time. Now we need to move here, but let me just say to those of you who have been struggling, because I know you guys, right? I, we've talked, falling into old patterns, not sure even if you're saved since you thought that by now, after growing for so long, you would be beyond this sin or that sin, that you'd be holier by now. Maybe you fell into serious sin this week or last night. Maybe you know that something in your past that's biting you now is truly all your fault. Maybe something that you did that haunts you to this day is on your mind right now. How could you do something so unchristian? Maybe you got regrets. You have to know that God is merciful. It's a crazy thing in 1 Samuel 29, but it's right there, clear as crystal, black and white. That sometimes because God is good, we don't get what we deserve. The fact that you're breathing, the fact that you're here right now, it's because God is merciful. So you can run to him. Psalm 103 says, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, 
So far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Do you know who wrote those words? David. Real quick, point three is the shortest one. We'll run through it. The irony. The irony, which gets to the heart of it. Verse eight. And David said to Akish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king? And that's another question that we need to major on. What have I done? Akish has no idea, but we know. David does. God knows. David has been lying through his teeth for days and years to borrow Akish's expression. Verse 9, and Akish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. It's almost comical. I know that you are blameless. Akish keeps heaping on the praises. I know that you have good character. I know that you're honest. I know that you've been loyal to me all this time. The irony is he never has been for one second. David is such a good liar, it's scary. And he's so good with words. Even when he says, my Lord, the king, it's not exactly clear if he means my Lord, the king, Saul, or my Lord, the king, you. David doublespeak all the time. He's always speaking through both sides of his mouth. Verse 10. Now then rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. What we see here is even though David doesn't deserve this at all, even though David has been lying this whole time, at the end of it, what happens? The Philistines go to battle. They do the dirty work for David. They actually end up killing Saul. They deal with the Saul problem, and David just gets to go home. Now, he's still in the land of the Philistines. The story of David isn't over yet. We're going to see some of these patterns show up again in David's life when he becomes king properly. But for now, let's focus on the irony. The whole passage, Akish keeps harping on about how not guilty David is when David is, in fact, extremely guilty. Three times, actually, Akish mentions, mentions how great David is, but David is not great. And it reminds me of this story a pastor shared once about how this guy in Chicago, he's just a normal business, businessman-looking guy. He just dropped his briefcase in the middle of like a busy intersection, and he started pointing at people. It, it was almost like he was going to start preaching, but he didn't. He just pointed at people in their face, and he just said, guilty, like he was a judge. And it was super weird. But I think because he wasn't preaching or saying anything religious, but just guilty, it really shocked some people, especially people who were hiding some stuff. In fact, someone even said, how did he know? It just jarred people because he said it with such conviction. It seemed like he really knew how guilty they were. Now, of course, he couldn't see their hearts. Man does not look at the heart. He looks on the outward appearance, but God is the opposite. God does look at the heart. He knows who we are. He knows what we've done. He knows the secrets we hide, the lies we tell, the lies we've even started to believe. We told them so much. He knows the worst things that you have ever done. You've seen them all. Akish doesn't know David's guilt. I might not know your guilt. Your spouse might not know your guilt. But God does. Now, John 18, we'll close here. We'll read this and then we'll close. 
I'll go back to Joe at the very end. But John 18, our scripture reading. I just want to close with this. John 18, start with verse 38. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, count it, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Now this text is also full of irony. Barabbas is truly guilty. Jesus is not. Pilate knows that Jesus isn't, and yet he doesn't let him go free. Keep reading. Chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Think about how obviously unjust this is to flog a man that you said with your own mouth is innocent. Verse 2. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, Count it. See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Again, he says it. Verse 5. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to him, behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him. For I find no guilt in him a third time, just like a quiche with David. But this time, the craziest thing is it's true. There is no guilt in Jesus. And yet... He sends him to the cross. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Irony of ironies. He is the son of God. When Pilate heard the statement, he was even more afraid. He entered the headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And that's it. The authority over everything, over everyone's life, over life and death, over punishing you for your guilt or letting you go, it all lies in the hand of God alone. What is Jesus saying? This was God's plan. God is sovereign over this. God is sovereign over 1 Samuel 29. And he is sovereign over your life as well. Everything that you have has been given. Every breath that you take, it's mercy. And your eternal destiny, your guilt before a holy God, the guilt that he sees, is between you and him. And let me ask you, where is the mercy in John 19 and 18? Look at verse 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 40. There's a man named Barabbas. He was a robber. And we read in other gospel accounts, he was a murderer too. He actually killed people. Under Lex Talionis, he deserved to be killed. That is justice. He deserved it. He was supposed to die. He was guilty. He was a bad person. But Jesus, innocent, in the plan of God, takes his place. And theologians call this substitutionary atonement. This is the heart of what Christianity truly is. What we deserve is death. What we deserve is the cross. What we deserve is to bear the wrath of God against the sin we've committed against him. For we are guilty. God is just. But the gospel says that God is also 
merciful. Without him, you and I were all on death row. We are Barabbas, but Jesus took our place. We'll close here. Joe faced either life in prison or the death penalty. You'd think he'd want life in prison. That's what I would probably want when facing the two, to stay alive. But the reason why he wanted the death penalty is because by law, if you get life in prison, he wasn't able to appeal at all. That was it. But because he knew he was innocent, if he got the death penalty, it was a gamble, but he could still appeal his sentence and maybe get another shot at it. He didn't kill the man. So he went for that small window. But the reason why I bring this up for you guys is because of a funny thing. When he got up on the stand to testify, his goal was to get the death penalty, which is a more serious offense. So his strategy was to share all the worst things about himself, to present himself in the worst possible life. He's like, yeah, I basically am a terrible person. I've been bad since I was a little kid. I was mean to my parents, mean to my... He just shared everything, no sugarcoating it, no excuses. He didn't lie. He just told the plain, despicable truth. And they gave him the death penalty because in their eyes, he was a terrible person. Later on, he appealed and justice was served and he got out and he lived to tell his story, the story I was able to read. But why do I share this? Well, it's not a perfect analogy, but bear with me. Joe did the opposite of what we do so often. We hide our sins. He exposed them. We try to downplay how bad we are. He proclaimed it. We try to blame shift on other people. The reason why I did bad things is because of he accepted the death penalty. And only then, paradoxically, was he able to go free. And what I'm saying is, there are many things to the Christian life, but unless you deal with your guilt before God, nothing else matters. So do you need forgiveness? Do you need assurance of your salvation? Are you struggling with regret? Do you harbor guilt? Are you stuck between a rock and a hard place? And are you there because of steps that you took yourself? Here's what you have to do, and it is urgent. Own your sin. Own your guilt. And take it to Christ. Will you bow your heads with me? God, we look to you. God, would you be merciful to us? sinners. We make messes of our lives so often, God, and so often we don't reap what we sow, and that is grace and mercy. But God, we don't want to presume upon your mercy and presume upon your grace. So God, I pray for each and every person here that they would turn to you, that if they don't know you, that they would turn to you for the first time. And if they do know you, God, I pray that they would repent and stop fooling around and, and seek to live holy, heart, mind, soul, and strength for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.